0: Hi, kooky kids. I'm Shamaya. It's like papaya, except it's not. And this is Plot Twist, please. Welcome to my humble abode. Welcome to my couch. Welcome to your screen. This is a place where I like to talk about media literacy, mental health advocacy, and the intersection of those things. So today I would like to talk about pretty privilege. Pretty privilege is something that a lot of people, I feel like, conflate on the internet and as someone who tends to benefit from pretty privilege, I thought that this would be a great opportunity to get an understanding, or rather a deeper understanding, of what pretty privilege means and how it can manifest itself. Because you know, language is hard, it's difficult, it evolves for different reasons, it is transferable in different contexts, and so it can get really muddled, which I understand. First off, if you don't know, I am a black autistic woman because I've been black autistic my whole life and also identify as a woman. So there are things that come with that that can be great and there are things that come with that that can be not great. And I'm going to talk about everything in between. Before I do that, though, I just want to let you know that I have these longer podcast episodes available on Apple Music, Spotify, what's the other one? Podbean, and some males. But I also have these shorter form YouTube videos that are more light and fun and just kind of me talking about pop culture in the way that I contextualize the world as a black autistic woman. So I talk about that stuff too. And the podcast episodes are where I like to do more like deep dives and have, you know, deeper understandings or a macro view, if you will, of these micro ideas that pop up within pop culture. So I'm actually being excited to talk about this, you guys. I have so many sources, and I can't wait to share. I think the day I figured out that I was, quote, pretty, and I'm going to go into what that actually means, because we got to actually define what we're talking about here. So for me, I realized that when people saw me, they got some sort of gratification or some sort of joy out of my physical appearance, you know, some sort of, enjoyment out of that and I honestly recognized that at a very young age um not in not in like a weird way just you know with classmates who you know had like lingering glances and at first and for a long time actually I really thought that I was doing something wrong and that's why they were looking at me because see I'm autistic and have always been autistic and one of the things about autism is you for a lot of autistic people it can be hard to decipher Social cues—it can be hard to tell what people actually want from you in social situations. So when people would have like lingering glances, I would always see that as disapproval or as kind of like like the alarms would go off in my head saying you're probably doing something wrong. That's well, probably why they're paying attention to you, or you missed a cue here, or, or you're supposed to do something now. And I would always be like, ah, what 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 do you, what am I actually supposed to do? What what is there something I'm supposed to like? <laughs> is there an exchange that I'm that I'm not? doing correctly here. Um, <laughs> so uh, what actually, what it turned out to be was me aligning with people's idea of what beautiful meant or, you know, people just looking at me because they thought it was nice to look at, which has its perks. And I'm going to talk about its perks. Um, but I also realize that I am and have always had difficulty navigating that really Because there's kind of this unspoken contract when you are a beautiful person, or physically at least, when people tend to consider you to be conventionally beautiful, that you kind of have to know what that means, that you kind of have to know how to navigate that and what people expect from you. And I did not know that. She did not know that. And so I think that for a long time and, you know, lots of different areas of my life, it required me to learn really quickly what those expectations were. And I know this is really, seems really, you know, theoretical right now, but I'm going to get into some specific, like, for example, I think when you were particularly attractive or conventionally beautiful, people kind of expect you to be socially adept too. They kind of expect you to know what to say, you know, to know how to make people feel welcome around you, to know how to be personable, to be charismatic. And young Shamaya was not charismatic. Young Shamaya had anxiety. Like (laughs) Kermit Shamaya has anxiety. Like it was not, it was, I didn't have it like that. Um, And so I kind of just didn't talk to people for the first six years, I think of, of, My public education. I just didn't talk to people. And I think what ended up happening was people interpreted my silence paired with my conventional attractiveness as snootiness or as being stuck up or snobby or as thinking I was better than them. And what it truly was, was I was an anxious child. I was an undiagnosed autistic child. (laughs) So... And honestly, I do hear that sentiment a lot from people who have always been conventionally attractive or, you know, beautiful in some way, is there's this expectation for them to be able to weave through social environments really easily because of their attractiveness. You know, it's kind of just expected that it happens that way. You know, you're supposed to be like this Malibu Barbie, popular, whatever, you know person, whatever they think that person is, especially when it comes to relationships and intimate things that I'm not going to talk about for free. But people definitely expect certain things from you when you're attractive. They expect you to know how to do certain things that I'm not talking about for free. (laughs) I'll talk about that behind the paywall. Become a patron if you want um, for exclusive content like that. You know, not just because I want it to be Behind the paywall, but because it is stuff that I need to be protective of a little bit, you know, there are things that I'm not sharing with the world. Um, but for a select few who become patrons, we could talk about all that stuff. Even in my dating life, people expected certain things from me because of the way that I look and because of how I present myself. Like, I like to wear stuff that makes me feel good, I like to wear stuff that accentuates my curves, and I like to wear makeup, and I like to do my hair, and I like to come out here. I like to come out here be and people have certain expectations for better or for worse and people almost have this entitlement toward accessing that part of you. This is the part of the editing process where I'm like, oop, I forgot to detail here so when i'm talking about access when i'm talking about entitlement something that makes it more complicated is the aspect of race and the aspect of gender so me as a woman and also as a black woman really does exasperate the situation because historically in media women and specifically black women have been portrayed a specific way as property as possession as something to commodify or just not our own people There's actually lots of data to support the correlation between the images we see in media and how we contextualize the world around us. So when I'm talking about the unspoken exchange of looking, I'm particularly talking about the people who have internalized these ideas of women, and in my case, of black women. The exchange goes as such. I get to look at you, and then I give you something. I get the pleasure of looking at you, that is your gift to me, and then my gift to you in return is lots of money, or status, or power, or a trip on a yacht, or things as such. And these exchanges happen on both an individual level and on a systemic level. What I found odd, though, on an individual level, is that a lot of people will assume you are participating in this contract without you admittedly opening that door. They kind of just assume that you are a willing participant, and that's where it gets tricky. Without going into extreme detail, people expect certain things of you. They expect something within this exchange of beauty this exchange of looking first in order to talk about the exchange of looking I think we need to talk about what pretty privilege actually is because again I feel like people when they talk about pretty privilege what they're actually talking about is beauty as currency because beauty is currency what they're actually talking about is desirability politics because beauty cannot be divested f- from politics what you perceive as conventionally attractive is political who you find attractive is political we like to think that we all live in a vacuum that we just we just want what we want and we like what we like because we are so individualistic but a lot of the time what we like what we invest in is based off of conditioning a lot of the time not all the time but a lot of the, all the time it's based on what we think we should like what we think we should want one of the examples that i like to give and i'm talking about this like amongst like my friends who i talk about this nerdy stuff with is in reality shows when it seems like particularly in reality shows perfect, perfect match, where it's like it almost seems like the men are looking for a very particular type of woman to kind of like become this ideal woman who they think that they should have because they are now in this celebrity bracket, like this reality TV bracket. And so they feel like since they are like on TV and they have a blue check mark and people know who they are when they go out in public, that they should have access to this kind of woman, to this particular kind of woman who fits the aesthetic of, you know, whatever perfect woman is conventionally acceptable in this time period or – these pop culture, beauty trends as they are right now, whatever that woman is who aligns with that, that's the woman they think that they deserve or that's the woman that they want to pursue. And so nothing becomes more clearer to me of that and of the politics of desirability than Perfect Match and other reality TV dating shows where it seems like these men are on here to find a woman to fit into the mold. I know what you might be thinking. Shamaya you're talking a loud game where are your sources well baby honey dearie <laughs> I got those sources okay and one of them is a good old definition of Wikipedia of the male gaze so when I'm talking about these men on reality tv dating shows or just men who walk about the world who belong in a certain income bracket that allows them access financially to basically any kind of woman that they want because they have so much money what I'm talking about is the male gaze so in feminist theory, the male gaze is the act of depicting women and the world in visual art and in literature from a masculine heterosexual lens that present and represents women as sexual objects. And a lot of the time, two men who are not self-actualized, who have not dug deeper into you know, deconstructing all that stuff, a lot of the time, that's where these women stay, in the sexual object part of the brain, <laughs> and they don't become full-fledged humans in these men's brains now you would argue that some of these women actually buy into this purposefully and some of them do some of them you know get the butt get the butt lifts get the boob jobs get the lip fillers get the face whatever and try to become this ideal woman to have access to that kind of man but i'm about to tell y'all in a minute how that is a losing game it's a losing game i understand why women do i understand that they're particularly women who don't have any other way to get into that world, to get into that income bracket without that stuff. But we're going to talk about how beauty is a bad investment and how at the end of the day, we are all just in the cages. They're just designed differently, but we are all still in cages. All right. There's a really brilliant piece of work, piece of literature on how these visuals that we see in media can dictate what we seek after in real life, especially as it comes to bodies like women's bodies black bodies etc 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 there's this aspect of looking at something over and over and over again to the point where you think that that is the only image out there or to the point where you crave that same image over and over and over again because it's been fed to you it's been shoved down your throat I'm just going to link that uh, um, piece of literature below because it's it's so rich and I don't think that it can encompass everything that it has to offer, you know, through a five second snippet. But I am going to read this one little teeny tiny passage. Here's a snippet from visual pleasure in narrative cinema. In a world ordered by sexual imbalance, pleasure in looking has been split between active male and passive female. The determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure, which is styled accordingly. In the traditional exhibitionist role, women are simultaneously looked at and displayed, with their appearance coded for strong visual and erotic impact so that they can be said to connote to be looked atness. Women displayed as sexual object is the leitmotif of erotic spectacle, from pinups to striptease, from Zigfield to Busby Berkeley. She holds the look and plays to and signifies male desire." Here's one more really important quote from this. The extreme contrast between the darkness in the auditorium, which also isolates the spectators from one another, and the brilliance of the shifting patterns of light and shade on the screen, helps to promote the illusion of voyeuristic separation. Although the film is really being shown, is there to be seen, conditions of screening and narrative conventions give the spectator an illusion of looking on a private world. Among other things, the position of the spectators in the cinema is blatantly one of repression of their exhibitionism and projection of the repressed desire onto the performer. What's so interesting to me about the male gaze is that it's not new. It's not, not this new concept that just emerged with the TV and the internet. The Greeks were very conscious of the male gaze and definitely created art based off of it. You know, what comes to mind to me is all of those famous paintings, pieces of architecture, sculptures that accentuate the female body, which definitely folds into this definition of what men defined, or rather heterosexual men defined as beautiful. So yeah, those roots are deep. So when people are talking about pretty privilege, What they're talking about isn't actually called pretty privilege what they're talking about is desirability politics desirability politics is based around the idea that how conventionally attractive you are in a certain space can determine the outcome of your life and it's not an exaggeration people who are perceived as conventionally attractive or more attractive by the community that they are in or by the society that they are in at that point in time are more likely to to get hired for higher positions are more likely to seem friendly or welcoming or kind or good they are also more likely to escape prison time or to get granted less harsh sentences in the court of law i mean you look at ted bundy you look at someone who a lot of people particularly women considered to be conventionally attractive he had fans he murdered so many women and had fans a huge part of the lore for Ted Bundy is arguably the fact that he was conventionally attractive and therefore seemed safe there are so many other aspects of desirability politics that I could go into but I'm going to focus on the ones that are important for this episode cuz girl girl if I had if I had a few days basically being conventionally attractive gets you a better life <laughs> you are more welcome in certain spaces you have more access to a certain demographic of people people who make a lot of money people who have a lot of connections which can lead to you having better health care better professional connections and a safer living environment having the privilege to walk around in safety and security is huge massive makes a big difference in your quality of life and i think when people talk about pretty privilege which doesn't actually exist i think when we ignore the political aspects of it and the fact that this is a structural thing that's when i think this conversation gets really noodly. i think we get really lost in the sauce when we don't talk about the actual structures that prop up conventionally attractive people and when we don't talk about how conventionally attractive is often synonymous with white or white assuming or having Eurocentric characteristics i think we really do miss the mark when we don't have that discussion i think the thing that made people kind of blow up on tiktok was the fact that there was an autistic woman who was conventionally attracted by societal standards and the fact that she went online talking about how having pretty privilege was not all it's cracked up to be and she also explained how being autistic has made pretty privilege not quite work for her. We did end up going down a a real black hole. I think, here's where I think her argument faltered. Because she was talking about how when you are more attractive, you tend to get sexually harassed more. You tend to be sexually abused more. You tend to be trafficked more. The bottom line is, that's not true. It's not, it's not true. And I know, I know it would seem like it would be true. I mean, if you haven't done research, of course it seems like it's true. Like it seems like if someone is beautiful, then more people would want to use their beauty as a commodity against them. Like that makes sense in, I guess, a logical brain. But when you know the stats and you know how structural disenfranchisement works, it doesn't make a ton of sense. (laughs) Because here's the thing, sexual assault, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, sex trafficking. It's all about power. I don't think we realize how much sex has to do with power when it comes to sexual violence. Sex trafficking. I was looking at the, the stats about this and I, I put the source down below. It is a study from USC by a woman named. Ooh, baby. we going to pull this up. We're going to know her name. What's her name? It's Suzanne Dworek Peck. Okay. Facts you didn't know about human trafficking. We're scrolling down to what kind of people get sex trafficked or human trafficked the most? Anyone. Can fall victim to human trafficking. Anyone. However, vulnerable populations who have little social and legal protection are the most at risk. And risk for women may be heightened further in areas where extreme gender discrimination prevails. Now, guess what it did not say? It did not say conventionally attractive women. Now, what it does say is that impoverishment, residing in a place of political instability, Enduring systemic racism, suffering from a mental disorder, or being involved in gangs may increase a person's likelihood of victimization. Nowhere in there does it say conventional attractiveness is a contributor to your likeliness of being a victim of human trafficking. Nowhere. Now the other dangerous part of this kind of argument is that women who are claiming that because you are conventionally attractive you are more likely to be sexually abused are directly harming those women who are not conventionally attractive and who are victims of sexual abuse. Or sexual harm or sexual violence because what happens is when that happens to those women people don't believe them because of that rhetoric it's because of the phrase if you are more attractive you're more likely to be a victim of sexual violence that is a weapon against those women and it happens all the time it is about power (laughs) this is why it's such a scam this is why beauty is such a scam because literally There are there are men out there who claim to be attracted to a certain kind of woman, to a certain kind of aesthetically pleasing woman, the Instagram girly, whoever, whoever they think everyone thinks they should want. But guess who they're sleeping with? Guess who's laying beside them? Guess who they married? Guess who they have kids with? Not the aesthetically pleasing woman, not the Instagram model, not the woman they are claiming deserves the most respect, deserves the most care. Now, I'm specifically, I guess I'm talking about the incels, I guess I'm talking about the manosphere here, because they will run their mouths about how women like the dark skinned, the fat woman, the woman who they don't deem as as sexually attractive, how they don't deserve care, or how they need to, to go to the gym, or how they need to change their life in order to get the man they want. When I'm like, but who you laying up in the bed with, huh? Who, who is the mother of your children? But let's get back to the literature, shall we? Let's get back to the literature. Basically what I'm saying is being beautiful, being conventionally attractive, doesn't make you more likely to be a victim of violence, period. And so I was upset when women were coming online talking about that. Now when I understand, what I understand from this particular woman's take is that being an autistic woman does put you in danger of being a victim of sexual violence or relationship violence, and that is 100% true. Autistic women are more likely to be victims of sexual violence or relationship violence or abuse than non-autistic women or holistic women, but you being an attractive woman does not make you more susceptible to that. Now, and this it's, it's one of those things that I think gets so messy when we're talking about structural systems institutions versus individual experiences because something can harm you on an individual level. People can think you're snooty. People can think you're stuck up. People can think that you get whatever you want. But structurally, you are way ahead of the curve. Structurally, you have so many advantages just by existing. Walking in a room, you already are at an advantage over the other people in the room because of where you sit in society, because of how you look. And that has to be acknowledged. I have to acknowledge that. I have to acknowledge that. Yes, I have trauma from being you know, in certain groups of people where those people made assumptions about me, being commodified because of my beauty, from being expected to be a certain way because I am both black and beautiful, okay? Being a minority and being beautiful, that's a whole different stack of cards, baby. But I have structural advantages. And, and also, like, when you go into, like, being high-masking skin, if you don't know what that means... High masking means you are better at masking in social environments than other autistic people. So for me, I'm a very high masking individual. I could sit in a group of people and I could figure out how to blend in. I might not do it extremely well. Like I might seem a little quirky, but I'll, I'll pass. I'll, I'll, I'll pass. Maybe I'll get a C plus in the social department. So I have certain advantages with that, especially when it comes to employment job interviews, meeting new people, networking, okay, all of that, that's a social game that I have an advantage in because I am a high-masking, beautiful, autistic person, okay? And people who benefit from desirability, politics, have to acknowledge that. Regardless of our individual traumas, that is going to be the biggest factor in my quality of life. Where I sit in that structure is going to be the largest indicator of how my life will end up. Now where I think we do get lost though is the nuance of discussion because I think what often happens is when people who do not benefit from desirability politics hear someone complaining about where they sit in society when that person wouldn't be anywhere nearer where that person who benefits from desirability politics is I understand how that could be frustrating hearing those complaints how you might have an attitude of like why would I listen to you you can fly anywhere you want because your man can fly you anywhere he wants to. You can walk into a room and people immediately like you, immediately feel safe around you. You can have a a flat tire and someone want to help you and not make you want to do it yourself. You can get into places for free. (laughs) I've gotten into places for free. (laughs) People have have paid for my stuff (laughs) and I don't have to ask. And so I understand that. I understand, but still, I do think that when we ignore the fact that beauty As an investment always fails I think we missed the point if we forget that beauty is a temporary fix then we're not going to get anywhere we're not going to be able to empathize we're not going to be able to heal as a collective people if we don't acknowledge that beauty is a short-term solution and is largely a scam because beauty fades people get old people get wrinkles people have children people's bodies change people get autoimmune diseases bodies change over time so you will there will be a point where beauty cannot be your form of currency the well is gonna dry up because that's the way the world works there's gonna be someone younger than you coming right behind you someone more beautiful than you coming right behind you i don't want to have to keep this up forever like I mean, I'll keep it up for as long as I can because sometimes you gotta do what you gotta do in the system to make it work for you. But I'm not trying to be invested in this forever. Forever? That sounds exhausting. At the end of the day, yes, your beauty is your currency, but it still requires you to be picked by a man in order to work. It still requires a man to give you his stamp of approval in order for you to benefit from that system. It's not on your terms. A YouTuber who I really respect talked about how she used to be a non-attractive black woman and then she went to another country and she, to them, to that culture, she was the standard of beauty. And so the attention she got there versus the attention she got here in the States was vastly different. And yet, and this is a trigger warning, yet, In both instances, both in the States and in that other country, both where she was deemed not the standard of beauty at all and where she was deemed the beauty standard, she was a victim of sexual assault. And the grossest part of this, and she explains this so eloquently in her video, but the most disturbing part was when she was being sexually assaulted in that other country, she kept being told how beautiful she was. No one wins, is what I'm trying to say. Nobody wins. If your success, if your trajectory of your life, if your access to safety, if your access to healthcare, if your access to happiness is based off of how you can attain beauty, it's like a situation where if you do buy into beauty, then you get access to certain things, but you are still commodified by the people who give you access to that. And if you don't buy into beauty, then you are still harmed structurally and people will mistreat you interpersonally. So it's like It's like, do you want to be a house slave or do you want to be a field slave? Like, (laughs) you're still in slavery. It's like that that VeggieTales meme that went around where it's like, we were in slavery. And they're like, but y'all had nice blankets. Y'all had a roof over your head. And they're like, but we were in slavery. Like, (laughs) that's what it is. Basically, misogyny hates everyone. It hates everyone. And nobody wins when that system is still determining who has access to safety. And all those other things that I previously mentioned. There are so many ways in which I, as a black girl, had to police my body in order to not be taken advantage of. And it shouldn't have been that way. It shouldn't have been up to me. It should have been the people who would have taken advantage of me needed to take ownership over their actions. But I got so used to controlling my body, to doing things a certain way, to walking down the street a certain way, to wearing certain clothes, to talking certain ways, to gesturing in certain ways to make myself as far away from blame as possible if something might happen that I had to deconstruct that part of my existence that I had to literally be like I don't have to move through the world to appease men like I literally don't have to make my life about making other men happy (laughs) and that is a hard thing to do when that is engraved in everything that you do when you're young especially as a black woman you know there's just this culture I think among black people where we consider black women to be the matriarchs and we consider black girls to be matriarchs in training. We basically raise little black girls to be mothers. Before we even decide if we wanna be mothers, you know, we just treat them like they are already extremely mature when we should have been treating them like they were children because they were children. You know, it's, it's we, we force young girls, young black girls to grow up so fast, to be so conscious of how we move through the world that we don't even get to decide how we want to move through the world. We don't get to decide until maybe our 30s how we want to be seen. Our, we, we don't get to decide what our relationship is with our bodies. A lot of us, until we are much older, you know, the kind of self-discovery that a lot of young white girls get or even a lot a lot of young white men get, we don't get. We don't get to discover our bodies in the same way because For as far as we're concerned or as far as our caregivers are concerned, our bodies are to be protected or our bodies are a means of production. And I think we should just get to a point where we just let bodies be bodies. We just let bodies just be there being bodies, you know, because your body does so much for you, housing all the things that keep you alive. I think we just need to go easier on ourselves, to be honest. One thing that has really helped me on that journey is learning how to dress in a way that I felt good, in a way that made me want to get up in the morning, in a way that was true to who I was as a person. It made me feel like I was putting something out into the world that really communicated who I was. You know, because I feel like another thing about black girlhood is a lot of us are just existing in a reactive manner, you know, uh, as a reaction against what people think black people should be like. And maybe maybe we just put that away for a little bit and try to discover who we are as individuals outside of, this it's hard but i i really do hope that for us in closing i hope that you encourage the women around you the black women the autistic women and everybody else (laughs) to be who they are and when you compliment them try to find something else to compliment them on other than their beauty all right thanks like and subscribe if you like what i'm saying to you share this with a friend or a foe and i hope to see you soon stay weird bye